That is Eddie Vega. And that is Chiburduña. And this is Words. And Shit. Brought to you by the Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. Eddie, let me ask you, because I have a theory. Because we both grew up in Texas. Uh-huh. I went to school in Texas. On the border. On the border, yes. On the border, actually. Um, growing up, you know, say like middle school, high school age, what were some of your favorite books that you read that you were introduced to? Oh, man. There was, you know, there was the Chronicles of Narnia. I read the entire series. Mm-hmm. I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe probably about two or three times. Wow. Um, and that, that, those were, I read a lot of young adult British literature. And let me tell you, that, that influenced my language uh, <laughs> in a way. Um, the first time that I ever, in the classroom, uh, used the word that, that I thought was perfectly fine because I read it in the literature about, about something being weird. Um, I said queer, but that was queer. It's a bit queer. And the looks on the teacher's faces, you couldn't <laughs> could you imagine. Did she think it was rubbish? She thought it was rubbish, but she didn't know what rubbish was anyway, so. Interesting, interesting. Okay, okay. I think this is validating the theory I have circulating in my head. Okay. Uh, because for me, you know, I remember reading such, such uh, books as uh, The Lord of the Flies, right? Ooh, yeah. um, the Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started exploring authors on my own, finding Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club um, and just loving these kind of uh, these stories, these, these fiction stories um, because that's all I was exposed to. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Therein lies the rub. Because like you said, we both grew up on the Mexican American border. Mm -hmm. We went to school on the Mexican American border. Yeah. Why were we not learning about Mexican American authors? That's a, Great question. There was one. There was one time in seventh grade, Miss Hinojosa's class, Mm. we read a Sandra Cisneros short story. Okay. Seventh grade. That was the only time. There was a one story out of all those years. And I forgot who I was talking to. Maybe it was my mother, but she read House on Mango Street in college in a world literature class. Wow, yeah. I'm like, that's from Texas. <laughs> Why are we teaching it in world literature? Why is that not part of American literature, right? right. Yeah. Um, and I say all of this because we had such a great kind of behind the scenes conversation with our guest, Big Aunt Anthony Gordon, about white power structures in literature and um, dismantling those because he's getting the opportunity to uh, propose his own charter school and so he gets to craft his own curriculum and this right. idea of inclusion and equity was something that we talked about a lot during this conversation. Yes. Great conversation. So let's dive in. We've got Anthony Gordon, AKA Big Ant, an accomplished educator, 
slam poet, DJ, originally from Detroit, Michigan. He is, the, he is a four-time national slam team poet, the 2013 Fort Worth Slam champion. He's finished in the top 30 at the 2013 IWIPS in Spokane. He's also a successful youth slam coach, co-coach for the Fort Worth Youth Poetry Slam team, and our very own San Antonio Fresh Inc. Poetry Slam. Uh, He's also uh, was the coach for the team champions of the first DFW Louder Than a Bomb Slam Finals in 2015. He's even open for Nikki Giovanni. Who can say that? Mm. Big Ant can say that. I throw a shoot. That's right. He's most recently finished second at the 2018 King Slam San Antonio. Uh, I don't remember who was first, but anyway. Actually not true. Thanks to a time penalty, he was first and I was second. <laughs> well, that was 2020. In 2018, he was second, but in 2020, <laughs> he came in first. He came um, in first. To, to some guy named Chibi. Anyway, <laughs> he was selected twice for the Via Poetry on the Move competition, 2016 and 2017. And he was named the best local DJ at DFW uh, Poetry Award. Served as house DJ at a bunch of slam teams. There's more and more on here. He's working predominantly in some of the state's most most undeserved communities, found a great and lasting success with his students, and currently proposing a charter school on San Antonio's east side, a community with strong ties to the family's heritage, to his family's heritage. Gordon's work is inspired by his experience, his hunger for equity, and his wife, Ashley, and his three daughters, Sean, Parker, and Carson. So we've got none other with us, none other than Big Ant. Big Ant! That was long. I... It was. It's because I put it in 14.5. <laughs> it's accolades. It's all the accolades. It's years of achievement. Uh, yeah. Man. Yeah. I just How do poetry, you? man. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. Everything's great. Um, you know, still adjusting to the new normal, but, you know, we're doing our thing. Locked, locked in over here, enjoying a lot of family time. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Let's start the way we start off every week. Hand the show over to you, sir, and give us some poetry. All right. Let's do a couple poems here. Um, as my boy Eddie always tells me, I have a lot of poems about family. So uh, we're going to start there and then uh, see where this leads. I can vividly remember the moment I fell in love with my wife was the first time she made me her green chili enchiladas. When they hit my tongue, my old eyes rolled back into my head and I mumbled some inaudible approval. She told me there were a piece of her childhood. I'll tell you, there were corn tortillas and the promised land meat. She first made them for me when I had nothing, sitting outside of the open mic where she wandered into my life. She told me she wanted you to know I was thinking about you. She hasn't stopped since. She was my conduit, bore the brunt of my broken, carried me crack and crumbling, loved me when I couldn't, showed strength when I couldn't. She is almighty, Afro-Latina. I am man because she exists in my space. She is my superhero. Her powers beyond reproach. She can maintain a household, homeschool and nurture children, build her career, plan for our future, do all things for everyone while preventing me from destroying everything she has built, 
still find time to plan epic quarantine birthday extravaganzas complete with gluten-free cakes from scratch without having a hair out of place. She's brilliant. A perfect mix of freak and feminist. Yeah, she's sexy and she's down for the revolution. She's exquisite, beautiful like every word in Raspberry Beret. She ain't no ride or die. See, she's more about living, cleansing our space. Sage bundles and soap. Sankofa spoke into our seeds, breaking generational shackles because being built different isn't a disease, it's a goal. Yo, my wife, my wife is like the hood, Martha Stewart, mixed with Angela Davis, Ileana Van Zant, and Pam Greer on steroids. Her only weakness, her daughter's laughter. The only time she allows herself to be mere mortal is only for a moment. And I love her, but not nearly the equivalent to the way she loves me. This is the irony of man, to be in the presence of the most precious gemstones and never truly have the ability to compliment and shine. That was the first one. So shout out to my wife, Ashley. She's in the other room with uh, two of my daughters, Parker and Carson. I can hear them laughing. Hope they're enjoying the show. Hope y'all enjoying the show. Um, one more um, related to family. This one is dedicated to my mother. My mother was that elite black, daughter of a prominent civil rights leader that proud to be black, God fearing that we don't talk about our problems or accomplishments, just put one foot in front of the other, that we don't rest until we've overcome because our ancestors shed blood for us to be here black in May. 1954, the Supreme Court passed Brown versus the Board of Education, giving all children equal access to education regardless of race. That September, my mother was handpicked to be bused from the east side to integrate Jefferson High School in San Antonio. On her first day, the principal told her she would never graduate. She did at 16, got her degree from Hampton by 20, moved to Detroit and started her own business by 25. I can tell you what strength looks like. The young woman surviving Jim Crow to be the first black family in a neighborhood that viewed her presence as the plague that had come to destroy their community. My mother was that hardworking black, that pay your bills, take care of your kids, and respect your elders. That I might be stressed, but I'm blessed and highly favored. A single mother giving everything she has to be a fortress for her kids. My mother was unbreakable, the black American dream, a superhero in plain clothes, fearless in the face of insurmountable circumstance in 1999. My mother was prescribed a Vandia, prescription drug to regulate her blood sugar. She had a stroke in 2000, cataract surgery in 2001, broke her leg in 2002. 2003, she said, it feels like my body is breaking down. 2004, fluid in her lungs. 2005, kidney failure. 2006, news report. Vandia is linked to congestive heart failure, a disease that causes your organs to fill with fluid until it chokes your body to death. Still, the FDA approved it to stay on shelves in 2007. Buried my mother in 2007. Got a letter in 2011 telling me Avandia killed my mother. Offered me $45,000 in their condolences. Now I just need GlaxoSmithKline to tell me how I'm supposed to buy a chance for my daughters to ever know their grandmother. Intimate emotions can't be expressed in a photograph, no matter how lovely a frame you place them in. I wish I had more pictures of her. Immortalize the embraces. Those moments when smiles were innocent and time was less fleeting. To remind us of her face, of the sunlight in her eyes and the fire in her soul, my mother never told me her life story. 
She folded up her legacy and placed it in her bottom dresser drawer like some ill-fitting garment, too meager to adorn, but too haggard to pass down. Now all I have is secondhand stories, like some idle inheritance to recount everything she was, if you ask me. What do you do when the person you thought was unbreakable is broken right in front of your eyes? Tell her story so that your babies can tell their babies about the strength and beauty from which they come. All right, one, we'll, this will be the last one. Then we'll get into some conversation. So um, as we say in the poetry community, I got some new shit. Oh, here we go. This one is inspired by a true story. Um, names have been changed to protect the guilty. When I was in seventh grade, my teacher called me a thug who would never graduate because I corrected a mistake she made during her lecture. So embarrassed, she condemned me to the gutter she had assumed I came up from. This is why I became a teacher, to ensure no other black boys would feel how I did that morning. In retrospect, her actions were only foreshadowing for what I would come to know as classroom caring. Karen is not hard to spot. You'll find her, finger hovering over the emergency call button, exaggeration cocked in her throat, ready to school the prison pipeline somebody because she can't connect, can't condone anything other than assimilation, clank slang correcting, detention delivering, white dominant culture wielding, quick to call for campus police because Jamal didn't do his homework and Malik won't pick his head up. She's asked him so many times and she can't understand why, refusing to acknowledge her actions, constantly condemning because it must be them or their parents, can't be the system. Her grandparents grew up with nothing, but made good use of those bootstraps so her students can do it too. If they just have grit and make no excuses, classroom Karen practices sympathy over empathy, walks in every morning with enough pity stuff in her bare Bradley backpack to level any student's self-worth. Karen can't be a racist. She's got black friends. She's woke and appropriately use lit in any sentence. She's for the movement, read how to be an anti-racist. Now she's ready to lead the diversity, equity, and inclusion professional development classroom. Karen, every racist isn't waving a Trump 2020 flag, just like every ally isn't aware of themselves. The definition of implicit bias is an attitude that affects our understandings, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. But I guess they didn't teach you that at TFA. I know, I know. You're colorblind, but when you don't see color, you don't see our struggle with inequity, police brutality, and the system that says one in three of your little Jamals and Malik's will end up behind bars, and you implementing Teach Like a Champion can't help them avoid that reality. Just show them how easy it is to be institutionalized. Understand, there's a big difference between having the best intentions and being intentional to my seventh grade teacher, aka classroom Karen Triple OG. The 4.0 that I earned completing my master's degree proves that your words could not define me and I did not need your pity, just an opportunity for you to see I was never what your perception of me was. Thank you all, thank you all. Y'all are famous. Y'all are like better than like the, the NBA restart right now. Oh, you fancy, huh? 
That's funny. That's funny. Y'all, that was big Ant, Anthony Gordon, spitting some spitting some wisdom up in here. Um, I want st- to I want to start. I just want to ask for those that don't know, you know, because um, we got your bio at the beginning. Uh, you are an administrator now, and yeah. we'll get to that. But can you take us through just a little bit of like your history? Like, what was your journey through education? Um, to arrive to where you are now so that we can understand your background. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it, it starts with my education. So um, I kind of alluded to it in the last poem. Um, I went to private school from pre-K through 10th grade. So I was afforded a really great opportunity <clears throat> in Detroit where a lot of kids who look like me don't get that opportunity. Um, my last two years of high school, I ended up in public school and I really saw the inequities in education. And this was with my private school that I went to and the public school I ended up at were literally blocks apart. But so even within the same community, I was able to see like the, the huge differences in ed- equity for, for kids in education, especially students of color. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't go to school for education. Like I went to college to, for broadcasting. I worked in radio and TV, but um, you know, I graduated during the recession and I needed a job. So <laughs> um, I started teaching fresh out of college. I started at a really small private school in Fort Worth, but really had an itch to get back to uh, get back and give back to my community. Mm-hmm. So um, from there, I moved to Houston and I worked for a charter school there in uh, what would be considered an underserved community. From there, moved to Dallas, Fort Worth. I worked in in South Oak Cliff. Shout out to all my Dallas people, Fort Worth people. I see a few on on the call here. And then from there, I moved here to San Antonio. And um, I spoke about it a little bit in the poem about my mother. My mother was part of a group that integrated San Antonio Public Schools in 1954. Um, so she was bused from the east side to go to Jefferson High School here in San Antonio. I ironically, when I moved back to San Antonio, ended up working in that same neighborhood, like walking distance from the house my mom grew up in. And our group of sixth graders that year on average was at second grade levels in reading and math. It was like at that point, it was like this huge high like light bulb moment for me. You know, I knew there were inequities, but to see like my family's history in this community and like the blood, sweat, and tears, basically my mom had, had shed and gone through and being a part of this group. And I'm here 60 some years later and the kids are in the same, if not worse positions, it really like lit a fire for me. So from there, that's where I really got into administration and uh, what leads me to now uh, proposing a school to the state. Mm. So pro- proposing, uh, but you shared some information with us earlier this summer that are we safe to share now or has the situation changed because the world is on lockdown? No, no, um, we're still in the same position. Um, I'm right now working with a local nonprofit um, called City Education Partners, uh, City Education Partners, I love them, uh, to propose a charter school. It'll be named after my grandfather, who was Reverend S.H. James. He was the first black city councilman in San Antonio. So right now I'm going through the application process, uh, which is a year long process. So if we're approved in June of 2021, uh, my school will actually open in August of 2020. Right now, just working to lay the foundational pieces and put this thing together so we can bring high quality education to kids on the east side. Mm-hmm. Well, we got our fingers crossed for you. Oh, yeah. 
thoughts, prayers, good vibes, whatever you can send my way. <laughs> well, Eddie's got a few candles, I'm sure, lying around the house. Light them up, Eddie. There's a, a curiosity question. Um, is I was I was watching a, an episode of The West Wing the other night, um, and I don't Jeffy, I don't remember. I don't know how familiar you are with the show, um, but there's a character Charlie. Um, was one of the president's aides, and he's from DC. And um, the mayor of DC was in town, or is it, it was in the White House, uh, because the mayor had uh, established or wanted to establish a city a, a system of vouchers. And uh, they came in and they asked Charlie, who had been in the public school and now is working at the White House, where did you go to school? And he told them the public school thing. And then somebody asked him, but where did you want to go to school? And he said, kind of like what you said, that there was a school uh, a few blocks away. Uh, and it was a prep school, it was a private school, where they didn't have the metal detectors. Um, and they didn't have the fights. Um, so I guess maybe it's a philosophical question. Is it important to take the kids out of their school where they are and put them into a new one? Or to make the school like it should be like it ought to be like do you do you move the kids or do you move the school i guess right i i that's really a tough question because i think we're we're at a well traditionally let, let's look at traditionally first traditionally students have always had to leave their schools leave their communities to get quality education that has a couple of effects first it's usually like our best and brightest students that are being taken out and moved. So it leaves this huge vacuum in the community just of talent at, at in the first place, right? It also um, takes away resources because now some of the schools are underperforming, which means less funding and, and eventually schools get closed, right? So the biggest problem that we're seeing is there aren't enough resources and, and just quality programs being created in our neighborhoods. So for me, I, I want our program to be in the community. So students aren't having to leave the community, but it's a double-edged sword, right? Do we wait for these systems that are in place to correct themselves when they've been at this for generations now and the situation hasn't improved and we're constantly failing kids every year? So do we continue to fail kids or do we tweak the system and hope that everybody else catches up. Mm -hmm. So my hope is by building this within the community and, and showing people that, yes, it is realistic for us to have what would be considered an elite education, an elite school within a community where it doesn't usually exist, that hopefully that sets off some light bulbs. And I'm not the type of person that wants to, um, by any means, like hog the glory or say, I changed like. I want to work with the local schools and, and share resources and, you know, because it, it's going to take more than me to fix this thing because it's really big. I think it's really about people kind of getting rid of the ego because there's a lot of ego involved getting rid of the ego and focusing on what's important. And that's the future of our kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to take a deep dive on this subject, I don't know if you have tapped on it yet, but there is this new podcast out there called Nice White Parents. Hmm. that basically analyzes what is wrong with the public school system in America. And the answer is nice white parents. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, it's brought to you by the people that uh, produce cereal, 
uh, and they and they have now been funded by the New York Times. So like it's legit and it's a deep dive on this subject. Um, but let's let's get your deep dive on that subject. You know, like you grew up in the private schools uh, and went to public school your last few years. I grew up in the public school system, and I have to be completely honest. Like I am only now independently being exposed to writers of color. You know, I'm only now discovering that there's a whole world of literature out there that beyond Mark Twain and mm -hmm. Plath. So what are your thoughts on, you know, to, to put it bluntly, dismantling white power structures in literature and education? <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think it begins with the idea of just redefining what we consider classic, right? We, we, we were force-fed these things, and, and it, it's a big problem. I mean, it's, it's fiction, it's poetry, it's nonfiction, wherever you see it. And yes, writers like Plath and Frost and, and Harper Lee and John Knowles are, are classic writers, and these are great books, but do they speak to everyone, right? And uh, there's also like a need to recognize that there are a lot of classic writers of color, Walter Dean Myers, Cisneros, Lord, even more modern. I mean, if you want classic, go read Ebony Stewart, Homegirlhood. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, one yeah. of my Anthony Douglas, Dismember Rainbows, Jessica Helen Lopez is, is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And even looking beyond what we traditionally consider literature, right? Daisy's Reasonable Doubt has some like metaphor and imagery in it, you know, uh, Kendrick Lamar, damn, won a Pulitzer Prize. Like, mm -hmm. why why don't we consider this to be classic literature and use it, especially when it's gonna connect to our students at a really deep level? Like, uh, Chibi, like, you came and performed at my school for my students last year. And one of our most struggling reading students, you probably remember his name was Anthony too. One of our most struggling reading students, he probably couldn't tell you any story he read in his English class last year. But up until we went into lockdown, he was still talking about your poems that you did when you when you performed for our kids. He, he could break it down, he could explain it, but it spoke to him personally. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I feel like there's, there's this dominant culture and this want for the dominant culture to force us into these boxes to assimilate into what uh, literature is, what language is. And we have to speak more directly to what our kids need and where they come from. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I had, I used to have knockdown drag outs with one of my instructional coaches about this. We had a, a lesson we were doing on, I think it was personification. And the book, the story that they want us to, wanted us to read in the curriculum was uh, something about the Little Mermaid. It was like an aerial story. And I'm at, in, on the east side with a bunch of young sixth graders and you want me to read The Little Mermaid with them? Like, they will tear me apart, right? And so uh -huh. I'm like, no. And it took my principal actually stepping in, saying, no, like he knows what he's doing, let him do it. I did um, some Langston Hughes poems, like Harlem Night Song was one, Africa was one. The kids were super engaged, got it at a level like that they had never gotten it before. And my instructional coach was observing me. The funny thing is after my lesson was over and we were debriefing, she was like, it was so good that I went on Amazon and ordered a Langston Hughes book while you were speaking. <laughs> okay, this is what I'm saying. Like there's there's so much classics 
but we have to diverse, diversify ourselves. And this is like really a great opportunity to begin that process because everyone's eyes and attention is on this subject. Mm-hmm. Now, let me, I want to flip that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is there anything of the so-called classics that you would keep or any oh, one? Yeah. Like you, you have to have hope, right? It, it has, but, it, but that's the thing. It, there has to be a balance to it, right? Like, Catcher in the Ride was one of my favorite books growing up. You know, like I could, like mm-hmm. White Fang by Jack London. Like, so they're like, it, it's not that we completely get rid of them, but we can't give this limited scope of literature and experience and expect people to be well rounded. And it's not just for children of color, right? Mm-hmm. It's for white kids as well, because they don't have a view or perspective of what it's like to grow up grow up as a person of color or what those mm-hmm. experiences are. So this is how we begin to cro- like cross that bridge and we really get to a point where we have equity. If we have if to we learn about their history, then yeah. they should learn about our history, you know? Right. And I want to follow up and, and, and actually bring Eddie into this conversation too, you know, like with it. So like at question to Ant, as an administrator, what are some things that you want to do to flip that script and begin this? And then follow-up question to Eddie, as a teacher in the classroom, what are some challenges that you face in being able to do that? Right, I, I think the first thing is just really being intentional. Like I said that in, in the poem, like there's a difference between having the best intentions and being intentional. In creating your plans and creating structure, you have to think about these things and think about the students you're, you're serving and working with in the community you're working with. If they're not involved in the process, it's really easy to overlook their needs or what's important to them. Mm. So, like for me, it's really important. Like as I begin to look at um, like what curriculums we're going to use, what books our students are going to read, to ensure that I'm picking from a diverse pool of books and resources and and curricula that speaks to that so that we aren't it it shouldn't feel forced you know and and i i have a pretty good idea what eddie's going to say because i was a teacher for eight years and i i've been i fought that fight so like i still want to approach it from that lens as the teacher who had that white dominant curriculum with a room full of black and brown kids trying to make it work you know, so like I want to approach it from the front end and ensure on the planning side that we make space for that and we give our teachers a voice in it as well. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's two things, um, and they're they're very related. And you know, of course, my experience is different. I teach in a private school, uh, and our parents are super involved, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but sometimes it's not as fun for the teacher, and the um, the involvement is going to come in to say by by them saying. Um, why isn't my child reading a separate piece? Mm-hmm. That's what I read when I was younger. Or they're going to say, that's what we should be reading because that's what's going to help them in college because the college wants them to have read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to see between what the colleges are requiring or what we think the colleges are requiring and also parents who still don't want. And even this is what's going to hurt a little bit more parents of the same culture parents of our culture who uh, think that they have to, that they have been, it's mm-hmm. been instilled in them that we only read the dominant culture's books. Mm-hmm. And they think that's what's necessary. Yeah. I and, mean, it's, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, but just to like piggyback on that, like that's 
the issue though, because a lot of those parents came through the same systems. Right. No. Right? Yeah. Well, it, it's it's deeply rooted, and it's gonna take a while for us to really like like turn the Titanic around, basically. But like, it's really a, a prime time to start having. It. Yes, as a teacher, I'd be all for it. I know mm -hmm. that it's but it, what it's gonna cause is those conversations, those difficult conversations that you're gonna have to have with parents to say, no, you know, we're doing something, we're doing you a favor here, you know? Mm -hmm. We're helping out your child. I mean, it's the same, it's basically the same as, you know, the parents that like force, parents of, you know, Mexican immigrants that force their children to speak English, mm -hmm. you know, and don't grow up bilingual because no, yeah, you have is. to integrate, you know? Yeah, right. And it, in the long run, you know, I think as, you know, like, we've been through a few generations of this. I think as like, we've come through it, we've realized like, no, that's not the right choice to make, you know, right? Growing up bilingual is is definitely a much stronger um, skill set to have as well as, you know, developmentally, neurologically, whatever happens in here, I'm not a doctor, you know, but <laughs> studies are out there, they exist, right? That it's, it's important to know multiple languages. So um, as we continue to navigate through the education system, uh, we're now, as, as, as you mentioned earlier, Eddie, the new normal, mm -hmm. we're in a new world. What is education looking like in COVID? You know, and again, I want to get the administrator point of view. Um, and well, let's just start there. <laughs> Maybe. The size says it all. The size says it all. Well, it, it, it's mess man it, it really is because it's there, there's so many there's so many things to consider right mm -hmm. um like one of the big things that i'm really working on and pushing right now is the idea of the digital divide especially here in san antonio there's a huge technology gap between um people of wealth and people without um so that's the first thing like when we uh, went into lockdown last year, the campus that I was at, I was on the west side of San Antonio last year, 80% of our kids didn't have access to Wi-Fi and laptops. So even with us passing our devices, there was a huge gap there. We also take into account that a lot of these uh, people in, in uh, low socioeconomic communities, their parents are the essential workers. So they're not necessarily able to be at home with kids full time while they're working online or whatever it may be. Um, then you add to the fact that it's just not safe. Like we are in the middle of a pandemic and kids are going back to school. And I don't care how careful you are as an adult, try to keep a first to second grader with a mask on for eight hours a day. Like it's, they're not going to eat each other's boogers in like the first right, minutes. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> it's, it, it's just not, it's really a dangerous situation. You mm -hmm. know, I, I can say like, I'm, I feel fortunate that I'm able to keep my kids home and homeschool them um, with the help of my wonderful wife who I talked about earlier, you know? Um, so, but I know there are not a lot of people who are in that situation, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have the flip side of it. A lot of the campuses that are starting virtually, they have kids sitting in front of screens from eight to five. So like, I know I sit in front of the screen that much all day and I'm like done at the end of the day, mm -hmm. right? You're seeing pictures on social media of kindergartners knocked out in the chair <laughs> at noon sitting in front of a screen. Yeah. So like, there really has to be a balance in what we consider school 
And we really have to redefine what school is because the reality is this isn't going to stop when this pandemic is over. It just really exposed and, and put a bigger spotlight on a lot of the larger problems that exist, both in the socioeconomic uh, realm of it and also just an educational overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it just it exposed, as you said, like the inequities that are happening. So what are some um, some ways around that? You know, like let's talk about non-traditional forms of learning. You know, like what are some things that you that you want to put in place or that you think we can put in place to, you know, like still continue to teach our children but in a safe way? I think the first thing is like we have to get back to the point where schools are a part of the community, not in the community, mm. right? And, and I think that's the first step because the reality is a lot of our families, like we said earlier, come up in the same systems. So they have the same lack of knowledge or resource that we're experiencing with kids right now. So we have to re-envision school as a place that works to educate the community, not just the kids in the building. Because if I'm knocking like, like Kicking the, the walls down, teaching kids inside that building from eight to five, and I send them home to the same conditions and situations. I'm putting a bandaid on the problem. We have to we have to reimagine school as something that's that's more a part of the community, involved in the community, providing services and resources for the community. As far as like what we're seeing now with the pandemic, I think the first thing is um, just like access to resource and equal opportunity, right? Like. My, my daughter who lives in Fort Worth goes to a private school. When they shut down, she had no issue. She had her laptop. She had Wi-Fi. She had everything she needed to be successful and didn't miss a beat. But we need to ensure that like our, our students, like why isn't there Wi-Fi in San Antonio? One of, like one of the largest cities in this country that's, that's like as tourist dollars spilling out of each pocket, right? Like, why aren't we investing in that when we invest, invest in hundreds of millions of trillions of dollars into uh, buying assault weapons for SAPD? You know what I mean? So like, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> whole different conversation. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of things that we can do infrastructure-wise that levels the playing field, at least to get us to a starting point. Um, and then including in that, like one of the programs I'm working with, uh, with the company CEP that, that I'm working with right now, is they have a project that they're working on the digital divide, um, which tackles three parts, right? It's the infrastructure piece, which is trying to increase Wi-Fi range for the local districts, mm -hmm. um, devices for families, and also education. One of the biggest issues I had last year as a principal was sitting on the phone every morning with grandmas who are raising their grandkids and trying to get them logged in the Google Classroom. Mm -hmm. I literally had a grandmother who called me every morning for me to walk her through logging in the Google Classroom. So there's a clear lack of just like knowledge and ability that people who have don't even think about. But you know, we have to begin there, and that goes back to that idea of, of schools being for the community and not just for the students they're serving within the building. So, like you know, I guess we're um, not only first generation, it might be first generation kids in college, but also just plain old first generation computer users. 
And that's what exactly. we understand about the digital divide, that it goes beyond just like hardware. It's beyond just the Wi-Fi system or a computer. It's the knowledge to be able to know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And not fall victim and prey. Like the internet is a dangerous place. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the accessibility of it. I, I worked in uh, phone tech support for a number of weeks. And that was, let me tell you, you know, like that'll give you some gray hairs and make you want to yank your hair out real quick because it is one of those things where it's like, you don't realize how much of a knowledge gap there is just because accessibility wasn't a thing 20 years ago. You know, and it isn't until something like a global pandemic that brings these issues to light that uh, that you realize, like, wow, we have a lot of work to do, mm -hmm. a lot of work to do. You know, we could, I would love to talk education more with you, um, but there are some other questions that I have, and the biggest question I have is um, that's not the biggest question, just a very very curious <laughs> question, I guess is uh, you you opened for Nikki Giovanni. I'm assuming you met her? Yes. And what was that like? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, we all want to know. <laughs> so it is very seldom that you get to meet one of your heroes, let alone share the stage with one of your heroes. Like that is probably one of the crowning moments of like, this whole poetry slam thing I've been doing for like the last 13, 14 years was just being able to be in that space. You know, we got to talk to her backstage in the green room. She autographed a book for me. Like, like there's really no way to describe it. It's like, it's like if you're a sports fan and you get to meet Michael Jordan, like I'm, I'm a poetry fan and I got to meet, meet Nikki Giovanni. Like I already had like five or six of her books on my shelf. You know what I mean? Like this is somebody who I've admired for years and followed. So it this was really a powerful moment um, for me and really gave me a lot of confidence and courage as a writer and a performer hearing her say, hey, you did a great job. Like I love your work. You know what I mean? Like like I was I floated out of that place, honestly. And it was in the middle of the winter and it was like ice on the ground. I don't even know how I made it to the car. <laughs> my wife was like, like like holding me by my coat so I wouldn't float away, you know, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You you do have a history in, in poetry and in slam uh, yes. specifically. How do you use your experience in poetry and slam? Because I do like to distinguish the two. There is poetry and there is slam. Uh, how do you use your experience in, in the two mediums as an educator? Um, it's it's a huge part of, of everything I do, like especially when I was in the classroom. I was an English teacher, obviously. So um it was it was like we we implemented poetry anywhere we could. Like we if we were reading outsiders, we are reading uh We Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks as an introduction going into like a chapter, right? I would do poetry slams with my kids on Fridays. And uh, they would have to make sure they hit all their milestones throughout the week so we could do a slam on Friday. I've coached poetry slams at my school. Um, and I think it's something I've also used just for kids with uh, for social emotional learning. Right? Mm -hmm. Because we all know being in poetry, like this is literally therapy. Like 
You're a week, a terrible life, and you can write a poem and go on stage and just like spill your guts on the stage. Like that's refreshing, right? And it also pulls you in and, and gets you to relate and find uh, common commonalities with other people. So like, that's another way that, that I've used it as well. Um, um, I, I coached the first team that won the lottery and the bomb in DFW. And uh, one of the students on there was a student who like struggled with anxiety. And she was a kid who never talked. Like it, it was pulling people to get her to talk. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we did a writing assignment one week and I read her poem and I was like, what in the world is going on, right? So, you know, I convinced her, worked with her, got her to be on the team. There was a write, a writing competition related to the competition. She won that, won $1,000. She got up and did her poem and had the highest score tonight. There's a picture somewhere on Facebook of her running across the room and like jumping on my back, being so excited. And it literally took her out of her chill. From there, she was like in, in dance in high school and doing all these things. She's in college now. You know, but it's, it's really a tool to help kids not only discover themselves, who they are, but also discover their voice and be able to share it with people in a medium they, they wouldn't, you know. And, and as far as like the administration side, it's something that would definitely like the arts are going to be a part of my school. I know there's like this big push for like arts to be taken. Like, no, it's going to be a part of everything we do, mm -hmm. Every, like everything. So y'all be ready to come in and do workshops. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like used to be, you, you were talking about STEM programs, STEM, STEM, mm -hmm. STEM, science, technology, uh, engineering, math. Mm -hmm. And now you hear about STEAM and STREAM mm -hmm. programs where they added the arts yeah. uh, in there. And I don't know that it's filtered enough down into South Texas like it's hit in other places. Mm. Um, I don't know what your experience is of that too. If you've, uh, I think seen I that. think it's one of those it's one of those things where it's dependent on your zip code, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's just like like when when you think when you think of the lens of education, you have to think like zip code. It depends on where you live. I can say that if I go to a school in Alamo Heights or Stone Oak, I'm gonna see all of that, and it's gonna be deeply rooted in everything we do kids are going to be celebrated. But I can say if I go to a school on East Side, I'm going to see reading and math for mm -hmm. four hours a day. And that's it. And it's this thing where like you can't take things away and limit knowledge and think kids are going to grow. That's not how it works. You know, so but, but I think that's that's really dependent on where you live, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or what school you attend, you know, some people have the luxury of being able to choose where they send their, their students. They're, they're not their students, they're kids. Um, let me ask you about you. Cause again, I'm curious about your history. I want to get to know more about you. Um, did you on the subject of poetry and slam, did you seek out poetry slash slam or did you stumble upon, did it find you? Okay, that's a good question. How do you oh, get it? Um, uh, going down a rabbit hole. Okay, so. <laughs> and just, you know, just before we go into this conversation, no, your daughter is watching. I know, and I can hear my wife laughing in the other room because she knows what's going before. So, Big Ant originally thought he was going to be a rapper. And somewhere floating around, there's probably a few songs 
that none of you will ever hear in your life. But uh, <laughs> I've always been a fan of music, right? So that's where it really started from. And it, it really evolved into poetry. So before I moved to Texas, I started um, writing poetry a little bit more. I attended my first slam um, at Chameleon Cafe. I, I never forget. So that was my first slam. Uh, but when I moved to Texas, I kind of got away from it. I still wrote for myself. Uh, but as far as me being an official slam poet, I have one person to thank for that. And her name is Princess McDowell. Mm. Some of y'all know Princess. She is like one of my favorite people in the world. We went to college together. And um, I, she ran the newspaper at the college and I ran the radio station. So we connected that way. And um, she introduced me to the Fort Worth Poetry Slam. And uh, so I started attending Fort Worth Poetry Slam. And that's when I really got deep into slam poetry and uh, made the team a couple of times, went to nationals um, and eye whips and things like that. Um, but it really evolved from there. I've been doing slam for, I want to say, like years. For how many, sorry? 13. Whoa. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, that's about the same as me. Okay. <laughs> 2000, 2008 was my first national. Okay. Okay. And where was that? Yeah, it was in West Palm Beach. Okay. In West Palm Beach. And then I did St. Paul the next year. Okay. Okay. And how do you feel like the slam community or the slam style has kind of like affected you? <laughs> man, um, I love it, man. Like I honestly, some of the best friends and people I'm closest to in my life are people that I slam with or, or met through slam. And I feel like my my circle of friends is crazy diverse because of that, right? Like I, like I was joking to my wife the other day, like I'm sure some of my friends from Detroit look through my friend list like, who are these people? <laughs> but, mm -hmm. So like, I feel like it's really given me an opportunity to broaden my horizons, broaden my perspective, and, and it's really helped me to be a more equitable and inclusive person, right? Because, you know, I have relationships with, people from all different walks of life, different spectrums of life, backgrounds, and they're people who I'm really close to and, and, and love. So I feel like it's been really powerful for me in that way. It's also like really giving me a lot of confidence to like be able to get up and talk in front of people because, you know, when you've been on stage in front of a couple thousand people, it's a lot easier to talk to a room full of people, you know? So I think it's helped in that way. Um, definitely has improved my writing and my um, ability to write, especially like high volume writing, which I'm having to do right now for this application. <laughs> so um, ten thousand words. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 really it's it's helped me in a lot of ways. I'm like I'm like eternally grateful for Slam. I see my boy Johnny uh, Major Rivers the Third on here, who I met at Iwits like randomly, who's like one of my closest friends, like it, it's, it's, it's just been, oh, and, and most importantly, I met my wife at a slam. <gasps> there you go. So like, was the yeah. poem? <laughs> I should have led with that, but <laughs> like, I, you led in the poem, you led with it, because it was in the poem. You also have those two poems that came out on the bus. How was that? How is that kind of writing different from the slam writing? 
Um, and did you did you enjoy it differently? Yeah, like I, it, it's I, I enjoy writing just like writing writing. Like I enjoy writing not just for slam because like that writing for slam is like super intense, and in some ways you gotta like kind of write to your audience and like you, you're kind of forced into a box some like you you don't have to but like you you know what's gonna get a reaction and what's not you know what i mean so like i do like the opportunity to like just like take a step back and the two poems that i that i got on the bus for the via competition were both poems about my family and so um i know i write a lot about my family now but First starting out, I really didn't have the ability to write as much about my family. I don't know if it, if it was, I wasn't like in touch with myself or my feelings enough to write from a real place about my family and my experience. So I wrote about other people's experience a lot more. I did a lot of like persona poems and things like that when I was first starting out. So I feel like now I'm coming to a place where I'm really coming to grips with who I am, my upbringing and who, and you know, like my emotions and feelings as a person. So. I am enjoying like writing things outside of slam. Like, you know, we're not slamming now. So I, you know, anything I write is just like personal or mm -hmm. you know, getting thoughts and ideas out. Do you think there's a difference in those poets who are writing from the perspective of having an English degree, communication degree, uh, versus those who are just starting out? Like you just said you wrote a persona poem. Mm -hmm. Does Everybody know that. Do, do are there slam poets out there that don't know they're writing a persona poem, and has that influenced them in some way? Um, I'm, I I come from the space of like everybody has their own space. I know there are some people who have a little bit more of the technical side of it, but I think that's also where the slam community is super powerful, right? Because now, you know, you have like me who like I minored in English. You have like Rooster, who's like one of our homeboys who has like MFA and like, you know, they really like sit down with you. So like, I feel like the community brings you to that point. Everybody comes in with their own space and their own voice. And it's not really about changing that. It's just like giving them the, the tools to improve as a writer. And so like, even though I came in, I was already a teacher and I graduated by the time I started SLAM. So I was already doing, um, I was already a, a English person but I don't think I had mastered the different styles. So a lot of what I was doing was going with what I knew until I was able to sharpen other skills, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's really about everybody coming in in the space they're in and being willing and open, learn and grow and take feedback. Cause that's the hardest piece, especially for writers. Like, you know, yeah. words of Erica Badu is, you know, I'm sensitive about my shit, you know? And <laughs> Like that's how writers are. So you you really have to be open to that feedback because I, I got a lot. And, yeah. and and you know, Chibi and I were on the other end of that a couple months back when we were getting ready for Southern Fried 210Gs. And and like, you know, we we're in there giving some people the business, like, nope, this you gotta get better, you gotta get better. And and luckily we had people who were really open to that and wanting mm -hmm. to grow and, and they did. I mean, it speaks to that with you saying like you've been you've been Slam, slamming for 13 years, writing for much longer, and you just now feel like you're kind of getting into and yeah. tapping into like what is at your core as as a writer. You know, like mm -hmm. it's it's a process. You know, yeah. like 
you may be spitting bars, you know, when you first start out, but uh, it's going to take a while and it's going to take that immersion. And it's going to take that community to really bring out your true voice. Um, we have a fan, uh, a great co uh, question here from the audience asking, do you have any suggestions for students or young adults who want to publish their work? Um, probably not the one to ask. I don't have a lot published. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Something that, that, that maybe is really important is that it's entering contests. Yeah. Yeah. Via one was free, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. like, yeah. The VIA one was one I saw a flyer at the library and I just went into it. But I think the main thing about getting published is consistency. And I I just haven't done it consistently. It's not something that, that really has been like top of mind for me, especially like being in slam. I think like my focus was really like on being the best slam poet I could be. Um, I do have chat books that I put together um, that potentially probably could have gotten published if I sent them in to someone, but it just... It just wasn't something that was on my radar. But, you know, I think it's really that piece about being consistent, trying different outlets and different venues, because one place may reject you, but that may not be the place for you. Mm -hmm. I think like just going online and really like researching, like who are people who have published poet poems and poets who are similar to you and your writing style and really like trying to, to push. Yeah, I, I definitely having had these conversations for months now uh, need to echo that where it's like, it's not necessarily about casting the widest net and just throwing your, your work out everywhere. It's being specific as to where to throw your work out. So know, know where you're submitting to and submit to places so that are for work like you. Yeah. And I can't say, I can't say like, I've, I've never really been published, but I've had students who've been published. My daughter has been published. And so, <laughs> Like, I think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if that's your space and that's your time, it's going to happen. So, yeah. you know, like I said, just, just dive in. Yeah. Catalyst. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He's the catalyst. You know, you're, uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're working in the reaction mm -hmm. um, without, part of, without being part of the result necessarily. Yeah. It's making well, well, Anthony, Anthony, it feels so weird to call you Anthony. Ant. <laughs> This has been a phenomenally educational conversation. I'm yeah. not surprised that it was, but yeah. <laughs> hey, when you got, you know, you got two great teachers on this call. You can't help it. Let <laughs> me point in the right direction. Over there. Over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right you, train, right there. you train people. You're yeah. There. Thank you so much for joining us here on Words and Shit. Can you do us the honor of closing us out with one final poem? Yeah, I can do that. Let me see here. All right. Um, <clears throat> tired of being judged. Whispers under your breath, your condescending questions. I just want to be accepted for who I am. I treat it like a second class citizen. Being different does not make you better than me. Save your pity and your table scraps. You never understand what it's like to be black, vegan, gluten-free, and fat in Texas. Picture it, my family reunion, smokers exhaling like a 1950s greaser, my uncle, 
tasting briskets, chicken sizzling, succulent sausages splitting at the seams, and I enter. Central Market bag in hand, bust out vegan hot dogs, burgers, and gluten-free buns. Ask for a corner of the grill and aluminum foil because I don't like meat juice on my food, only to be barked at to be asked, what in the world is that? My response, this is food, sir. You know the kind I can actually eat. Because every year I tell you I don't eat meat, and you still put meat in the beans, meat in the greens, meat in potato salad, sprinkle bacon on fruit salad. No, sir, I'm not being bougie. No, sir, I don't want a plate. No, taking the meat out doesn't make it vegan. No, I'm not. I haven't been hanging around too many white people. No, I didn't join PETA, and I swear, if one more person asks me, if you only eat meat, baby, why are you still so fat? I'm going to chop them in their throat. No, I'm not on a diet. No, I haven't lost any weight. No, that doesn't mean I'm sneaking quarter pounders when nobody's looking. No, I'm not still hungry. No, you can't go out back and dig me up some grass to eat. <laughs> Very funny, because I've never heard that one before. No, I'm not rich. No, it wasn't hard. No, you waving a plate of hamburgers in my face isn't making me want to relapse. It just makes you in a noxious butthole. But they say you are what you eat, and there is a big bowl of chitlins on the table over there. Yes, I know I'm black. But that doesn't mean I have to remain shackled to traditions that date back to when my choices were as limited as your tolerance for anything different from what you call normal. I just want to be free. So no, uncle, this is not a cry for attention. But I promise you, the next time you try to sneak my daughter a rib while I'm not looking, these hands going to give you some attention. But enough of the hostility. We came here to break bread. And I just happen to have some. It's gluten, dairy, and soy free. Give it a try. It just might change your life. Big Aunt Anthony Gordon, y'all. It's my favorite Big Aunt Paul. That's about food and family and culture and everything in the one poem. Awesome. I think it was the first Big Ant poem I ever heard. I, uh, yeah, it was one of those where I was like, this motherfucker. <laughs> I think it was at that King Slam in 2018. Mm-hmm. And that's and where you I was like, you hosted that, didn't you? I did not host. I participated, but I was like, yep, I ain't winning this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for people that are interested in finding your work, you said you had chat books and things like that. How can people find your work? Yeah, I do have chat books. Uh, hashtag revolution released in 2020. If you want one, just inbox me. I'll get your information. Um, Cash App is Big Ant Poetry. All my social media is Big Ant Poetry. Hey, check me out. Hey, a principal, a principal that that does slam poetry, has got to be at the top of the cool principal list. That's fair. This is true. This is true. Well, thank you again for all the wonderful information that you shared, the perspectives that you bring, um, and you know, like fingers crossed, you know, like yeah. hopefully you get to bring these these thoughts uh, to life to fruition. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, keep your eyes out. coming to a neighborhood near you. Yeah, and then when you need us, we'll be at your school. I got you. All right, thank you so much for joining us, Ant. 
That was Big Ant Gordon, y'all. So hopefully, again, go follow him on social media. He's at Big Ant Poetry. If you want to send him a couple bucks, a little tip for all the work and all the, the masterclass he just gave you, his insight on education, you can at Cash App Big Ant Poetry. Uh, or reach out to him, message him to get some of his po- some of his uh, one of his books. Yeah. Um, so that concludes today's episode. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, we gotta talk about next week. Well, tell me about next week, Eddie. You're the one that knows. Usually, I get a little text asking, "Hey, who's next week?" You know, during the last poem by the poet. That didn't happen this time. Sorry, I have broth. I have broth on the stove. <laughs> okay. I looked it up anyway. No, kidding. I already knew. I knew. I knew next week we've got a, a special treat poet, poet coming out to us all the way from Florida. I think that's where she's usually in Florida. I'm not sure where she is right now because, you know, the pandemic changes everything. She might be somewhere else, but she's, she's a Florida girl, right? Ebony Payne is coming, right? And with all her greatness, uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful uh, poet. Um, with a lot of energy and, and she does a lot because with students, uh, with kids, because uh, we are focusing this this month on education. Because we love our educators and we feel for you. You know, we feel for you. Most of my... <laughs> Eddie's like, I feel for myself. <laughs> I feel for myself. Yeah, so Ebony Payne joining us next week. We have a fantastic lineup. Thank you guys uh, for joining us here tonight. Please be sure to uh, join in next week if you want more information. Follow the Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook, B-L-A-H, Blah Poetry, um, or on Instagram, Write Art Out, W-R-I-T-A-R-T-O-U-T, Write Art Out on Instagram. And I just got to bring him back into the stream because his daughter has joined us. (laughs) She's getting ready to turn four, so this is her debut. (laughs) debut on the internet all right y'all so (laughs) there you are sorry any whoozle uh this was great um that is eddie vega and that is chiburduña no no he's over there it's close enough one of these days i'm gonna get there (laughs) this has been words and shit thank you guys so much Stay safe out there. Good night, everybody.